ask you a question. What was the happiest day of your life? Happiest day of my life, August 14th, 2004. I stood there at the front of a white columned church wearing a tuxedo and the most beautiful of women in the whole world, my wife, Christy, standing in the back. And I stood there with great joy and anticipation to marry my best friend. Two of my groomsmen ushered out a white aisle runner. They pulled it all the way up the aisle. A precious little flower girl sprinkled soft pink and white flower petals down the aisle. And down comes the beautiful bride, her father on her right arm. And they come forward. She comes to the altar to make a covenant. Covenant with me and a covenant before God. This is a picture of what's happening with Jesus. For in Mark chapter 11... Jesus comes into Jerusalem, not on an aisle runner or flower petals, but he's riding on a donkey upon clothes and upon palm branches. And he comes into the holy city, comes to an altar where he enters and creates and initiates the new covenant through His blood. That is what we see in Mark chapter 11. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Mark chapter 11. Up until this point, Jesus has ministered uh, in somewhat uh, small ways and behind the scenes. He has minimized his notoriety. He heals and then he conceals. He works a miracle and then commands that person to tell no one. So for much of his ministry, he's seeking to serve under the radar. Why is he doing that? It's because the religious leaders, once they discovered who he was, they would seek to kill him. Kind of like in Luke chapter 4 where Jesus goes to Nazareth and he unravels the scroll and he reads Isaiah 61 and says, this is fulfilled in your hearing. And the text says that they took him up on a mountain and they sought to throw him off a cliff. You see, once Jesus began to reveal who he was, the religious did not like him. They wanted to end him. They wanted to do away with him. And as the crowds would grow large, he would often withdraw. But now, the time for concealing his identity and purpose is over. Now he is arriving into Jerusalem, and he is not hiding his deity. He is performing miracles, and he is going to show people, this is what I came to do. I want you to know who I am, because he knows that the time has drawn near for him to go to the cross. It's interesting how much significance happens in this one week of Jesus. One-third of Matthew, one-third of Mark, one-fifth of Luke, and one-half of John is committed to the last seven days of Jesus. 
One-third of all four gospel accounts focuses on these seven days. This holy week of Jesus is so significant that the four gospel writers give more ink to this week of Jesus' life than any other time period of his ministry. These men inspired by the Holy Spirit, they write down the who, what, where, when, why, and how of the death of Jesus and leading up to the cross those seven days. We've seen in Mark chapter 9 where Jesus has finished his ministry up in the north. He's headed south to to Judea in chapter 10. And now in chapter 11, this is where it gets really interesting. Mark chapter 11, beginning with verse 1, when they approached Jerusalem at Bethpage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and told them, go into the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and will send it back here right away. So they went and found a colt outside in the street and tied by a door. They untied it and some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They answered them just as Jesus had said, so they let them go. They brought the donkey to Jesus and threw their clothes on it and he sat on it. Many people spread their clothes on the road, and others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. He went into Jerusalem and into the temple. After looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. In Mark chapter 11, Jesus arrives into the holy city with thousands of people gathered from all over the world. With the population of Jerusalem more than tripled, with political leaders strategizing and religious leaders scheming and Jewish zealots rebelling, the Roman military is on high alert during Passover. You could cut the socio-political tension with a knife. Add in the spiritual warfare of what Jesus is about to do, and Jerusalem was at a boiling point. Now the time has come for Israel's true king to come into his city. I want you to notice these four realities here in the text. The first is this. I want you to notice the careful preparation for the king. Jesus was intentional on how he would enter into Jerusalem. He arrives on the east side of the city at Bethpage and Bethany. These two towns are about two miles from Jerusalem. Bethany is the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Lazarus, whom he has chronologically just raised from the dead, this is where their hometown is. And probably, according to verse 11, I assume that that's where Jesus stayed during Passover week. He stayed at their house. And the time has come where he's entering into the city and he sends two unnamed disciples to a local village to bring back a cult that is tied up upon which no one has ever ridden. He gives very specific instruction of where to go and what to do. If anyone tells you to, anything says anything to you, you tell them, verse uh, three, uh, tell them the Lord needs it. It's kind of like in a movie where there's a a, a fast car.
car speed chase and the good guy needs a car. And so he pulls out his badge and says, I need it. And he pulls the guy out and he jumps in and takes off. Wouldn't that be fun, y'all? To have that kind of authority in which you could take over someone's car, you could commandeer it and take off. Well, anyways, this is what's happening here. They say, go, go find this cult. And if anyone says anything, just say, the Lord needs it. You know, pull out your badge, you know, the Lord. Now, what's interesting, this is the first time Jesus has used the word Lord in the gospel of Mark. He's referencing himself with a messianic title. Just as, Bar, uh, as uh, Bartholomew, as Bartimaeus was calling out son of David in the previous message that we saw, here Jesus is giving himself another messianic title, Lord, King of the universe, God over all. Here he is saying, this is who I am. Well, these two disciples, they go and untie the colt, and it is exactly as Jesus said it would be. Someone, they ask him, what, who are you doing here? Well, the Lord needs it. He says he'll send it back. Well, go on your way then. But why did Jesus specify in verse 2 that the animal is one that must never have been sat upon? To get our clue, we have to go back into the Old Testament. The Ark of the Covenant it's a golden box. If you remember, if you, if you grew up in Sunday school, you remember pictures of it. Inside of this golden box were the, the Aaron staff and the Ten Commandments and a golden jar full of manna from the wilderness. This golden box represented the presence of God, the power of God, the glory of God. We see in the Old Testament that when someone looked inside of the Ark of the Covenant, they died right there on the spot. But whenever the Ark of the Covenant was transported somewhere, it was carried along by animals that had never been yoked, animals that had never been trained. Whether it was oxen or it was cows, the prerequisite was that they had never been yoked. So whenever the Levites, whenever the priests would transport the Ark of the Covenant, that was the key. It was carted by animals that had never been trained. Jesus here is making careful preparation for his arrival into Jerusalem upon an untrained animal. You see, just as the Ark of the Covenant required an unyoked, untrained carrier, so the true and greater Ark of the Covenant required an untrained animal. You see, Jesus is the true and greater Ark of the Covenant, riding into Jerusalem on the back of an untrained donkey. The power and the presence and the glory of God is riding into Jerusalem on an untrained animal. Do you see the, the picture here? Jesus is pointing himself as the greater Ark of the Covenant. The power and the presence and the glory of God is not found inside of a golden box. It's now found in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the presence of God. He is the power of God. He is the glory of God. And here he is, picture David, bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. 
Picture Solomon bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the city and into the temple that has just been built. Riding upon these untrained animals. This is what Jesus is doing here. He's pointing to himself as the one who is the greater and truer and better Ark of the Covenant. Jesus here is setting the stage here for the parade of all parades. He is setting the stage here as the one who is riding on a donkey, one that has never been trained. Now, you might think, why is Jesus riding an untrained donkey? What if it decides to go rogue? Here's what I've come to the conclusion this week as I was studying this. I thought, well, if the one who contained the seas and the storms is riding upon the animal that he made, I'm sure he'll be just fine. <laughs> the one who sustains by the universe, but sustains the universe by the word of his power, Hebrews 1 3. The one who made the sea and the land, the one who made the animals, here he is riding upon a donkey that he made. And he's walking, this donkey is walking right into Jerusalem. And the one on its back is the one who made it. And the one who made it has control all over the situation. And he's using this as a picture of what has happened back in the Old Testament. That the son of David, the king of kings, is riding into the holy city as the true and greater ark of the covenant. So Jesus here is giving careful preparation of coming into Jerusalem as the king into his capital city. But I want you to see number two, the humble transportation of the king. They brought the animal to Jesus, verse 7. They threw clothes on it. He sat on it. Now don't miss the type of animal that he's riding upon. It's a donkey. And yet the choice of a donkey was strategic. For that was what the prophet Zechariah said would take place. You see, pointing forward to a future Messiah, the Lord said in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. Jesus is the king coming to Jerusalem, humble on a donkey. You see, everything Jesus did was in complete obedience to the scriptures. The redemptive drama of his entire life, death, burial, and resurrection was complete and in perfect alignment with the word of God. All of the scriptures are pointing to Jesus. In fact, Jesus told the Pharisees in John chapter 5, verse 39, you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, yet they testify about me. Here is Jesus saying, I am the promised Messiah. I am the one the entire Old Testament is pointing you to. I am the one who is the king coming into the city upon a donkey. And Jesus, the king of the universe, does he not deserve to be riding upon a gold chariot? 
A horse of nobility? How about a carriage of superiority? But instead, he comes riding upon a donkey, a humble animal. He doesn't ride in the pomp and the grandeur and the pageantry of a king of this world, but of a lowly steed. He comes humbly with meekness, riding upon a humble animal. Now, Mark's first century readers may have had a very puzzled look on their face because they have seen Roman Caesars and they have seen Roman generals coming into the city with great pomp and grandeur and great pageantry as they come marching in as the victors of their own parade, as those who are saying, yeah, I'm awesome, look at me. But Jesus doesn't come in like that. Jesus doesn't come in with pride. He doesn't come in with swagger. Jesus comes in with humility. He comes in riding on a humble donkey. Isn't that amazing? Just as Rome sought to promote the grandeur and the beauty and their power, Jesus here is humbling himself and riding on a meager animal. And yet, Rome is long gone and the kingdom of Jesus marches on. You see, make no mistake, every man-centered kingdom will come crashing down. Jesus alone is the victor over all. Hear me on this. If you're building a kingdom that's not founded upon Jesus, it will fall. Every government that stands up against Christ will fall. You cannot build anything upon the quicksand of this world. Rome was the most dominant force in the world at this time, and they are forgotten. They no longer exist. Those Caesars are dead and gone, and so is their government. They don't exist anymore. And here is the true king riding into Jerusalem. And he has a kingdom that lasts forever. We see the humility of Jesus, his humble transportation, and it's a picture of his purpose as the Savior. He came humbly, gently, like a lowly lamb to the slaughter. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But make no mistake, There is coming a day when Jesus will return and he will not be humble and gentle. He will not be lowly like a lamb, but he will be triumphant and glorious and return like the lion of the tribe of Judah. He will return as one who will execute judgment on all who reject him. You see, there's coming a day in which Jesus will return, not as gentle, but as glorious and as powerful and as one who will be swift to justice against all of the enemies of God. And may I say to you, if you have not trusted in Jesus, this is coming future. Run to Christ today. Run to Jesus and be saved. Trust in him. Flee from the wrath that is to come. Take refuge in the Lamb of God who took away your sins at the cross. Trust in him by faith. Receive Jesus and you will be set free from the wrath that is coming. Trust in Christ. 
This is why he came, so that through the cross, the wrath of God that we deserved was placed upon him. He gladly took the cross. He gladly embraced the wrath of God for our sins so that you don't have to. And it's grace. So you run to Jesus by faith and say, Lord, would you save me? I trust in you. I follow you. You're my king and Lord and master. You're my savior and my friend. And Lord, I now come to you. I believe upon you. Would you come as Jesus commands you to come? Where he says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. I will give rest to your weary souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Are you tired of playing the religion game? Are you tired of living one way in front of one group of people and totally different in front of another? Are you tired of trying to carry on this religious facade? Do you find yourself burdened by trying to keep doing good things just so God will like you? Turn away from all of that and come to Jesus, the one who is humble and gentle, the one who invites you to draw near, the one who's riding on a donkey. The one who deserves the greatest parade and the, the greatest pomp and the one who deserves the riches of all the world to come and celebrate. And he says, no, I'm going to humble myself. I'm going to enter into Jerusalem. And he's riding on a humble donkey. He does it because he's a humble savior who invites you to trust in him. He's a humble Savior who is touchable and approachable. As Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem, he doesn't have a, a bodyguard that's protecting him where no one can draw near. He's the one whom you can come close to. He is the one you can cry out to. He is the one who has humbled himself, not only to the point of riding a donkey, but to the point of dying a death, even death on a cross. Third thing I want you to see here in the text is the joyful celebration over the king. Verse 8 says, Many people spread clothes on the road. The road that Jesus is riding down is atop the Mount of Olives. Now, I've got a couple of, of pictures uh, I, wanna, I took uh, for when we were there. This is a, an extremely steep mountain. In fact, uh, the pictures that I, I don't, I'm not showing you today, there's handrails you have to hold on to as you're walking down this mountain. It's extremely steep. It's 2,700 feet above sea level, and it's a steep decline into the Kidron Valley, and at the very bottom, that's where the Garden of Gethsemane is. This is a significant mountain, for this is the mountain that David climbed when he was fleeing for his life from his son Absalom. This is the mountain that Solomon built idols to for his wives to go and worship. This is the same mountain where Ezekiel had the vision of the glory of God. This is the mountain where Jesus looked out across Jerusalem and wept. This is the mountain where Jesus up on top, he ascends back up into heaven and sits down at the right hand of God the Father. This is the mountain where Jesus will return and his feet will touch down at the apex of this mountain when he returns for the last time. 
So riding down this mountain as the true and better David, as the true and better Solomon, the glory of God arriving in Jerusalem in the person of Jesus Christ. He's riding down this mountain and the people are waving palm branches in the air and they're laying them on the ground. These palm branches picture, they symbol victory, triumph, and peace. The people thought Jesus has come to give us victory, but not in the way that they think. You see, the people are shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna means save us now. Save us now. You see, these people, they want to be saved from their enemies. Now, remember the political moment as they're shouting this. Jerusalem is a powder keg about to explode. There's a large population gathered for Passover. Jewish zealots are seeking to overthrow Roman rule. The poor are tired of facing heavy Roman taxation. The Pharisees and religious leaders are looking for an opportune time to trap and kill Jesus. Pilate does not want an uprising on his hands. The Roman military is on high alert. The spectacle of Jesus' arrival and thousands of people celebrating and honoring him, it's stirring up the hornet's nest. You see, we, we saw this, uh, this last year as a nation, like how quickly a riot can ensue. You get a big group of people, you get a couple of people to incite a few words and raise their voices, and all of a sudden you've got chaos on your hands. Well, in comes Jesus And he is setting the tone for what is about to happen. And the people are shouting. They're celebrating. Our Messiah is here. Our King is here. They're quoting Psalm 118. They're affirming Jesus as the Messiah they were expecting. But notice, Jesus doesn't silence them. He doesn't tell them to stop. He doesn't Stop them from declaring who he is. He is the king who has come to save. Jesus was their king, not in the way that they had hoped. You see, they thought Jesus was the king who would give them victory over Roman rule. They thought that Jesus was the military commander who was going to come and make their nation great again. They thought Jesus was the one who would raise up Israel to be a world powerhouse of military might and strength. They viewed him as a political leader who would give them their nation back. But those objectives are far too small for what Jesus came to do. You see, he came to bring complete and eternal salvation for the entire world. Jesus had a greater victory in view. You see, there was an even greater triumph that was about to take place. The Prince of Peace was arriving to bring ultimate peace between God and man. Jesus was coming to bring peace so that you and I can approach God as friends. Paul says in Romans chapter 5 verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, instead of you and I being enemies of God, he has made a way by sending his son who becomes a mediator, a go-between. Job longed for someone like this. In Job chapter 9, verse 33, he said, if only there was someone to mediate between us, 
Someone to bring us together. Job longed for there to be a mediator, someone who could go between God and man, enter the God-man, Jesus Christ. Paul says it like this in 1 Timothy 2.5, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus is the Prince of Peace who brings peace between God and man, and he does it through the cross. At the cross, Jesus absorbed the full wrath of God and the full sin of the world, and he takes it upon himself. He's the go-between. He's the mediator. So if you want to come to God, you have to come through Jesus, your great high priest, your mediator, the one who has made a way for you to draw near to God. You know, it's, it's interesting here. There's two things that I see happening as Jesus marches into the city. One is he's putting a target on his back, right? Now the Roman and Jewish leaders, they see him as a threat to be neutralized. But the second thing that is also equally true, Jesus is now putting the Roman leaders and the Jewish leaders and even Satan himself on notice. I've come to do something. I have come to challenge the authority that you think that you have, and I want you to prepare to do your worst. For when man does his worst, God does his best. We see where Jesus is setting himself up as the one who is going to be crucified, and the world will rejoice. Satan will think that he's won. But what happens three days later? Don't miss what Jesus is up to here. You may be thinking that you're facing an impossible situation. What am I going to do? How am I going to move forward? What's going to happen? And I say to you, would you look unto Jesus? Would you give it to him? Would you invite him to be Lord and King over your heart and your life and that situation that you're facing? And watch him work. Watch him move. He proves it through his defeat over death. You see, Jesus' triumphal entry into the city was a celebration of his conquest and his declaration of victory, not over Rome, something bigger. Not over Jewish tradition, something bigger. Over sin, death, hell, and the grave. He's Lord over them all, and he's coming into the city. But I want you to see this fourth thing that he's doing here. I want you to notice the mindful observation of the king. Just as David, verse 11, ushered the Ark of the Covenant into the temple, here Jesus arrives as the true and greater Ark of the Covenant. He heads straight for the temple. Now imagine this moment. (laughs) The true Ark of the Covenant... The true and greater temple is now in the temple. The glory of God in Jesus is now in the temple. Here he is, the Passover lamb has arrived and is ready for sacrifice. And as he stands in the temple complex, he surveys the area like a coach who's surveying the field before a big game like a general who's surveying the battlefield before he leads the troops. You see, verse 11 is the quiet before the storm. 
For the next day, Jesus is coming right back here to the temple, and it ain't going to be so quiet. The king has come. So, Kenneth, what are you calling us to today? What's your impact point? It's this. Worship King Jesus. The one who came on a humble donkey and is coming again on a warrior horse. You see, there's coming a day in which Jesus is coming back. And he's coming back with authority. He's coming back as the king over all. In Revelation 19, the Apostle, Apostle John says this, Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and he judges and makes war with justice. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample them the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. You can clap over that. This is how he's coming back, y'all. And if you do not know Jesus, this should terrify you. If you're outside of Christ, the reality of the wrath of God that is coming, flee from it, run from it, run to Jesus right now, and you will be saved on the last day. God not only will save you now, he will save you later. He is faithful to the end. You bank your soul upon Jesus and what he did for you at the cross. How he victoriously defeated death on the third day. You cry out to him to save you and he will save you today. He's a powerful savior, mighty to save. And he is a warrior king who is coming back on a white horse. But did you see who was with him? Those who were in Christ were coming back with them. Wearing white because we're pure. Riding horses because we're conquerors through him who loved us. We're coming back all because Jesus came for us first. On a donkey. And he entered into the holy city. And he was a man on a mission. To rescue you. To save you to bring you to himself so that now through him because he came through not on an aisle runner with flower petals but upon clothes with palm branches he went to an altar and through his shed blood he initiated a covenant with his shed blood and now through that covenant you can now come straight to God you have peace with him all because of Jesus, your King who has come.